Good morning, church. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to be reading to you starting in verse 17. We're going to cover one verse, but while I am doing that, and while you guys are doing that, I want to share with you scientists have uncovered uh, the answers to some of the most important questions uh, in life. Um, and so I wanted to share that with you as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. Scientists have actually now discovered the similarity between the Florida Gators and a possum. Scientists have discovered the link between the Florida Gators and a possum. Uh, they both play dead and they get killed on the road. They play dead and they get killed on the road. Uh, scientists also discovered why Florida Gators cross the road. They, scientists have discovered why Florida Gators cross the road because it's easier to cross the road than cross the goal, li- goal line in Death Valley. Is that right? Is that right? Come on now. So there's one question that scientists have yet to answer, and that is how many Florida Gator defensive players it takes to tackle Leonard Fournette. They still don't know the answer to that question, right? So um, we, are, we are continuing in our sermon series called War Ready. We're in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. I've got it for you here on the screen. At this point in the scriptures, the Apostle Paul is talking to us about the last two Pieces of armor. He concludes his discussion with prayer, and we're going to conclude our series uh, through the armor of God and being war ready next week on prayer. But these are the last two pieces of armor that the Apostle Paul gives to those of us who are in the fight. And it's important to say at this moment that whether you're in Christ or whether you are not in Christ, you are in a spiritual battle. You do not have the luxury of not being in a spiritual battle. You do have the option of choosing whether or not you're on the winning team. And if you'll put into practice some of the material we have covered up to this point in this sermon, you're getting a sense of how to live in victory in your life day in and day out. Let's go to Ephesians 6, 17. The Bible says this, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So in Ephesians six seventeen, there are five things mentioned that we're going to cover briefly. There's the helmet and salvation, and there's the sword, Spirit, and the Word of God. So if we're going to talk first about the helmet, we've got to get a visual image of what the helmets in Paul's day would have looked like. These would have been Roman helmets. Now, you might be familiar with the helmet of a centurion that has red horsehair feathers at the top. Those would have been aesthetic in nature. These helmets specifically would have probably predated those. These would be made of bronze. They probably would have had some cheek protection. And they would have protected the most important organ in the body as it relates to warfare. And that would be the brain. Without an eye, you could maybe still wield a sword, or or without an ear, you could maybe still shoot an arrow or launch a catapult. But without a brain, there would simply be no way to fight in war. So your brain is the one piece of your body that's absolutely essential to success in war, making the helmet, arguably, the most important piece of defensive equipment in your arsenal. Okay? The other piece of, of, of what's important to know about the helmet, and the Apostle Paul maybe does this 
intentionally, we can ask him when we get to heaven, the helmet would have been the last piece of armor put on a soldier before they were war ready. So you're getting your breastplate on, you're getting your belt of truth, you've got your feet prepared with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, you're geared up to go to war, and all of a sudden they put your helmet on, and now, as a soldier, you are prepared for battle. I think that in this case, Paul mentions it last, because in his mind, it's likely the most important piece of armor. Paul's using here in Ephesians 6 some imagery from Isaiah uh, chapter 59 verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read it to you here. This is the last part of verse 15. The Bible says this. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So in his own, so his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal in a cloak. Here we have a picture of Yahweh. A victorious warrior who wears the helmet of salvation as he saves his people and judges their enemies. Now he gives this helmet to Christians for their protection. And the helmet is salvation literally itself. Now here's what's really important. The Apostle Paul is starting to bring to our mind the importance of the mindset that we have in the spiritual war that we're fighting. So the imagery here is definitely intended to get you thinking about your thinking. I think uh, for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, once we're saved, our mindset should be different than before we were saved. Can I get an amen on that? The things that we think about, what we dwell on, what we allow to influence our minds should be qualitatively different in Christ after putting on salvation, the helmet of salvation, as they were before we put on the helmet of salvation. So there are two functions, I think, that the helmet of salvation should serve in the life of Christians. The first is the helmet of salvation should give you an awareness of eternity. The helmet of salvation should give you an awareness of eternity. C.S. Lewis is quoting having said, If at some point you find yourself longing for more than this world has to offer, then consider perhaps that you were created for another world. There are those times in life where the battle is raging or we're desperate and in despair. And it seems as though we might even be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Even in those moments, it's the helmet of salvation that should keep the Christian aware. There is another world for which I've been designed, even though I'm living in a world right now that is temporarily the place I'm inhabiting. And in that other world, when I go there, there's not going to be any more tears There's not going to be any more crying or any more pain. There's no disease. There's no sickness. There's no sin. There are no marriages headed for divorce. There's no sexual immorality. There's no addiction. This is a place of freedom, a blessed place we live in all eternity with Jesus where we can worship him. And it's that helmet of salvation, the awareness that we're destined for an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ that should fuel us in our lives day to day. And this is the second application of the helmet 
of salvation. Namely, that day in and day out, my attitudes and thoughts right here and right now should be different. There are two different ways I think that they should be different. First, I think that right here and right now, people who are wearing the helmet of salvation into battle should have an attitude of victory rather than an attitude of defeat. Can I get an amen about that? People are wearing the helmet of salvation. Remember that imagery from Isaiah 59. Yahweh, the victorious warrior, puts on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. He puts on the garments of vengeance and wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. This is a mighty God ready to go to war to save you and to save me from a death that we all deserve and to give us forgiveness that none of us could ever earn. And now he willingly bestows the helmet of of salvation upon all, any and all, who'd be willing to follow him. We have to carry that mindset of victory into each and every interaction and minute we live in this life. The second piece of the helmet of salvation is not just an attitude of victory versus an attitude of defeat. It's It's an attitude and a mindset of discipline rather than an attitude and a mindset that's chaotic. It's an attitude and a mindset of discipline rather than an attitude and a mindset that is chaotic. I was going to ask for a show of hands here, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, so do not raise your hand. How many of you brushed your teeth this morning before you came to church? Can okay, some of you ladies just glance kind of sideways at your husbands, men? You need to do a better job at brushing your teeth in the morning, okay? So here's the thing. Lots of us in, in churches and all over the world practice good dental hygiene. We practice good dental hygiene. Most of us even brush our teeth three times a day, at, right when we wake up, after lunch, and right before bed. We have three kids under age seven at my house, so this is a big part of our morning ritual and our evening ritual. And we're telling them, all right, babies, now we've got to brush the cavity bugs out of your mouth because those cavity bugs want to set up a home in your teeth. And when they set up a home in your teeth, we have to go in and get them out of there. And that is not fun at all. And so the kids do a pretty good job of brushing their teeth. Let's, let's shift that metaphor now to what I believe the Apostle Paul is talking to us here. How many of us practice mental hygiene with the same degree of discipline that we practice dental hygiene? And again, I'm not asking for a show of hands here, but, but search your own heart. How many of you get up every morning and with the same fervor you're trying to clean and purify your mouth, you approach the cleaning and purifying of your own mind? How diligently, even if you're on vacation, I still brush my teeth. But how many of us, even on vacation, open God's Word and take a moment to read and pray and get my mind and heart steadfast on the cross of Jesus Christ and practice disciplining my mind such that what's going on between these ears is not chaotic and unmitigated cultural influence that's infecting and poisoning my mind, but instead me putting on the helmet of salvation, being aware I am a child of God, and using that as the thing that directs every thought and attitude that crosses through my brain waves. And a lot of us may just do it in the morning, but how many of us are doing it but also in the evening? And isn't it sad to think that I just made a standard for practicing mental hygiene that equals the twice-a-day hygiene we practice brushing our teeth? 
How much more important is having good mental hygiene than good dental hygiene? But some of us are going to go to heaven, and this is not about retribution or salvation. Some of us are going to go to heaven, and we're going to have to talk to Jesus. And Jesus is going to have to say, man, Trent, you know what? You only had two fillings in your life. But I had to perform over a thousand root canals on your brain because you allowed anything and everything the enemy threw at you to infect and poison your mind. And because your lack of good mental hygiene, I had to spend time and time and time again twisting around on that brain of yours, purging the cultural, sinful, poisonous influences of the enemy just so you could survive, all because of your lack of effort and diligence in your approach to mental hygiene. That's the here and now application of the helmet of salvation. So let's move forward a little bit then into the Apostle Paul's thinking of the amount of time we need to spend being diligent in terms of our own mindset. I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I've got verse 5 for you up on the screen. I'm going to give you some context. I'm going to back up to verse 3. The Apostle Paul would put it like this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Here's why I got 2 Corinthians 10.5 up there. Lots of us misunderstand the word pretension. If I had to sit in you down and just one-on-one said, what does the word pretension mean to you? Unless you separate out the suffix from the root word, this is a compound word, it would be hard to assess or accurately define what pretension is. So separate it out, pretense, and now conjugated differently, it's pretend, pretend. So here's what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 10.5. In his day and in our day today, there are lots of Christians who are walking around pretending like I'm practicing good mental hygiene and acting diligently and wearing my helmet of salvation ready to boldly go to war against the forces of the enemy, but my actual life in the privacy of my own home or in my marriage or riding in my car when nobody's looking is completely contrary to what Scripture teaches. The reason is because I'm not allowing each and every, how many thoughts? Every single one to be brought captive into the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, so the life I live on Sunday morning in the pew is just pretense. And the person I'm trying to fool most is myself. Well, I've had perfect attendance on Sunday all, all the month of October. Or man, I've been at that, I've been at that, I've been at that Bible study every morning. But you're not actually living a disciplined mental life. You're not actually wearing the helmet of salvation in such a way that it gives you victory day to day as opposed to a sense of defeat day to day. And I think so often, if we're going to move into the next piece of this, that's how the enemy confuses us as to whether or not we're actually saved. That's how the enemy confuses us as to whether or not we're actually saved. Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, there are too many Christian pretenders. There are too many people who are pretending to be Christian and living as though Jesus Christ doesn't exist in their private life. Then when the storms of life start to blow and the war is made real, 
And the enemy comes at you with that one thing that is your weak area. And you fall. And he starts to get you to doubt. But see, you fell again. You're not even saved. Of course we're sitting there backpedaling on defense, wondering whether or not we're saved. And the second he's got us backpedaling and on our heels, we're easy targets. We're back into sexual immorality. We're back into substance abuse. I'm back struggling with depression or I'm isolating myself from my forever family. And I don't think Paul's intent here, and we'll have to ask him when we get to heaven. I don't think his intent is to say to Christians, man, just be certain you're saved. Let me tell you what, this is, this, this is the salvation narrative, okay? You hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're cut to the heart and you believe. And after believing in, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you repent and turn away from your sin and you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ and you are raised up to walk a brand new, regenerated, spirit-filled life in Him. If you've done that, You're saved. If you've done that, you're saved. Now start living like it and start acting like it and stop letting the enemy get you to doubt that I've obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ in accordance with the teachings of the Holy Scriptures and now I'm on my bedside at night wondering whether I'm in or not. If you've obeyed the gospel, you're in. Now move past your doubt and fear and live in the victory that God intends for you to live in by giving you the helmet of salvation. Can I get a witness this morning? Is anybody out there listening? If you don't raise your amening level, church, I'm not going to raise my preaching level at all. Okay? What's Paul's, if his intent is not that? Because I think that's, that's spiritual maturity 101 is to know I've obeyed the gospel and I am saved. I think Paul's intent is is something greater in reminding us of the helmet of salvation based on the imagery of Isaiah 59. Paul's emphasis and intent really is to get you to remember a new reality that you live after you're saved. If we've put on salvation, if we've been raised to walk in new life with the Lord Jesus Christ, then the new life we live is one where we've been rescued from death, wrath, bondage, and then been transferred into a new dominion where Jesus Christ rules in our hearts. This gives us a position of power and authority with Christ that is greater than the power and authority held by our adversary who is in this world who is against us. This is what John the Revelator is talking about in 1 John 4, 4. I've got this on the screen. You, dear children, that's you who have obeyed the gospel. You, dear children, are of who? Of God. And now that you're of God, you have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So when you put on that helmet of salvation, you've been given the helmet of victory. Greater is he that lives in you after you put the helmet of salvation on than he who is in the world who is against you. There's nothing you can come up against. There's nothing you can come up against after you've been clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've obeyed the gospel that is greater than you. Not because you're so great. But because he who is in you is great. That's cause for rejoice. Praise God. So the helmet, the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation, I think, 
is that mindset of victory that I know that I now have power. Not because something about Trent is powerful, but because the God who rescued me from sin and death through the gospel of Jesus Christ is for me, he is in me, and he is with me, and he is greater than he who is against me who is in the world. And I've got to start living in victory. Paul's saying, hey, this last piece of armor, boom, that's your guarantee. That's your salvation. And I think on the flip side of that, what he's saying is if you have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've got to become saved so that you can put on that helmet of victory that is your salvation so that nothing you are up against in this world will be greater than the one who is now living in you. So Paul gives us all these defensive pieces of equipment. But those of us who have played sports know that the best defense is really a good offense. There's three people who have played sports in here, and they're all right in this area. Let's try that again. If you've played sports, don't get all timid now. I'm talking about living in a spirit of victory. The best defense is really a good Okay. So he gives us this image of a sword. Okay, let's talk about some of the sword imagery really quickly. The sword is one of the only pieces of equipment that can be used offensively. Now, I could see myself in the heat of battle, like taking off a helmet and trying to bash a guy with it if I didn't have a sword or maybe even my belt to try and get away. But the sword is inherently designed to be used as a tool of offense. Now, when I get a vision of the sword in Ephesians 6, and I'm thinking... The Lord's sword. What would that look like, man? I mean, I've seen Gladiator. I've seen Braveheart. I've seen all the swords in the Lord of the Rings. I'm thinking the sword of the Lord is like six feet long. It's got like all these jewels around the handle. It's like blood, you know, just flowing down the hilt of the sword just because of all the enemies that God has vanquished. And it's so razor sharp, you swing that thing through the air, it breaks the speed, the sound barrier and causes this explosion as it swings through the air and just people just fall down at the terror of the sword. This sword is not that sword. And I took you guys just now into my mind, which should be a little bit terrifying, okay? Uh, this sword is actually... In the Greek, it's the same word that's used to describe a small dagger. So that we're given this sword implies that we've got an offensive weapon, but not an offensive weapon when the enemy is far off. God doesn't give us a bow and arrow so that we can grab an arrow from the quiver and shoot it from afar off. He could have, but that's not indicated here. He doesn't give us that long six-foot sword that's so sharp when you swing it, it breaks the sound barrier and causes an explosion and your enemies flee. That would allow us to like parlay and do battle from like six feet apart. This is a dagger. So it implies close combat. Now the enemy has gotten through all other defenses that I've set up. And, we're, and right here now we're toe-to-toe. It's just mano y mano, man-to-man, one-on-one. And I get to see how good I'm going to do based on the level of preparation that I've put in. I've got a text in here from Genesis uh, chapter 32. If you, the Apostle Paul used the word wrestle in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 to give us a sense of the closeness of the battle. And so if you just word search in, in your Bible app the word wrestle or wrestled, you'd come up with Genesis 32, 24. And I was talking to a, uh, someone a while back, and when I 
did that word search and this came up, I just thought this was such an important piece of the story of the battle that we fight. Now, here is a story of a guy named Jacob, and Jacob's actually wrestling against an angel of God. And so his wrestling is not against the forces of evil, which is what the Apostle Paul is talking to us about in Ephesians chapter 6, but I think the application really is virtually the exact same. So let me read it, and then I'll make the application. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When he saw... When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So in this text, again, we're seeing the reality of the nature of the sword in our combat. It's close. It's one-on-one. It's man-to-man. And so often, in close proximity to the thing that we, we, we're afraid of, or that seems like it's going to defeat us, or that we've been battling so long, in that moment it just seems like there's no way to overcome. Some of you are looking at me right now while I'm doing this, and you're intimidated. I can, I can tell. This is a ready position. And in that moment, in the story of Jacob, when he's given just about all he can, he gets broken. He experiences brokenness. And I want to tell you, friend, that sometimes our blessing requires our brokenness. Sometimes our blessing requires our brokenness. Sometimes in the close quarters of that one-on-one, mano-a-mano, man-to-man battle where it's just me and my sword and my helmet and my armor against the enemy. In that moment, so many of us retreat and we want to go back on defense and backpedal and then the enemy gets us on our toes. But in that moment, if we'll go to the point of our brokenness, I'm promising you that God will bestow his blessing on you. That's what we see in the story of Jacob and I don't have time to recount every single story in Scripture. I tried to do that at the first part of this message, where for the Israelites to get victory, either the sun stands still, or rivers part, or widows find more oil than they should, or people literally come back to life. But it's not until each person's moment of brokenness, Moses, Elijah, the Israelites, that their blessing is bestowed upon them. And so I I, want to give you guys the halftime speech that just rocks your world and gets you fired up. And you got to know that as you leave here today and you get out into the culture surrounding us, that there's going to be some close one-on-one combat. That's why we got the sword. But if you will stay in the battle and fight to the point of your brokenness, I'm promising you God will bestow a blessing on you. But so often our blessing doesn't come until we are broken. And if you're backing out consistently before the point of your brokenness, perhaps that's the reason you still haven't been given the victory that you seek. There's an interesting phrase used in Ephesians 6, after the sword, the phrase is of the Spirit. Importantly, the Spirit is the thing that makes the sword powerful, not you or me. 
I've had two knee surgeries. I've got a bulge disc. If I had to take a stud athlete on mano e mano with the sword, I'm not, I'm not betting on Trent today like I would have 10 years ago. And some of you can relate to that. Uh, some of you can relate to what I just said times about a thousand based on your own physical maladies. But here's the thing. This isn't a war fought with flesh and blood. This is a war fought spiritually. And God has given us of his spirit to empower our offensive weapon so that we can be victorious. And we will because greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world who is against us. So in 2 Timothy 1.7, the Bible says this. This is the Apostle Paul again. The spirit God gave us does not make us timid but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So here's the thing. When you're mano e mano, man to man, one on one, getting ready to do battle with the enemy, and that fear or that anxiety or that worry that of my own strength I might not have what it takes to overcome, fear not. Because God's given us of His Spirit, and His Spirit is powerful, and it's greater than the spirits against us that are in the world. And this Spirit, if we'll use it, will make us not timid or anxious or fearful but will give us a sense of victory and will even yield victory in the battle we fight if we'll stay faithful and fight the battle. Okay, so here's the other piece, though. What exactly is the sword of the Lord? I got the sword, and God's given me of His Spirit. It's the Spirit that empowers the sword. So now i got this offensive weapon that's indestructible and indefensible. Now, what exactly is that? It's not us yielding and wielding, excuse me, it's not us wielding the Spirit of God how we should choose. It's the Spirit of God empowering us with the tools God has given us. What's the tool He's given to us? He's given us His Word. God's given us His Word. Let's go to uh, Hebrews 4.12. I'm going to wrap up here. The Word of God is alive. It's active. This is the sharpest sword in the universe it's sharper than any double-edged sword you or i have ever seen it penetrates even the dividing of soul spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart so you're in battle and there's somebody one-on-one mano a mano and all of a sudden you smile and you toss your sword up in the air and it starts to flip around on its own and float and then it stops and two eyes pop out of the blade and a mouth with this menacing snarl And then the sword starts helicoptering itself right towards the enemy. And the enemies see it and they flee because they know that this sword now is alive. And And it's active. And it's the sharpest sword in the universe. And it's also indefensible. There's no defense against it. It can penetrate anything and everything deep down into the soul. So all the enemies flee because of this living sword God has given us. But the most important application of God's word, and one that we're so slow to really catch on to as Christians, is not to send the sword of the Spirit and the word of God out and use our knowledge of this to judge the people in our lives, but is to use the information given power by the Spirit in God's word to use against our most deviant and deceitful adversary. Our own self. So often in my swordsmanship, I get in the Word, I read, and every single verse I see applies to my wife. Right? 
I mean, you guys have been there. It's like, man, Kirsten, you you got to read this, you know. Or or to my neighbor, right? I read this. I'm like, man, this guy's got to read it. To those two people that I'm trying to minister to, man, God, your word was really written for family so-and-so. Thank you, God, for the words you gave me for these people. But all too often we neglect and miss the words God intends to speak to our hearts empowered by the Spirit through His Word. He intends first for us to be pierced and for the Word to minister and transform our hearts before we go about transforming the hearts of the world around us. I think importantly, the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God are, are closely connected to the helmet of salvation. Remember, the helmet of salvation is about keeping your mind occupied with the things of God. And the way to do that, to get ahead of the enemy's attacks, is by using God's Word. That's how we stay on offense. When I'm so consumed with God's Word and the truths in His Word that my mind is headed towards a direction rather than having the direction of my mind being set by the attacks the enemy is throwing at me. This is, this is exactly how it works in baseball. I played baseball for a long time. The goal of a baseball team is to have their pitcher throw three pitches an inning and to have their infield and outfield capable of fielding the balls and making outs so that each one of those pitches yields an out. You want your defense off the field. Because what happens when we're on defense for too long? We start to get tired. Man, you got a pitcher out there throwing 30 pitches in an inning. By that third inning, he starts to get disorganized and lose discipline. Not because he's a bad pitcher. The guy's getting tired. And so the coaches of the opposing team, they see the guy getting fatigued and they start telling their batters, look, this pitcher's getting, getting tired. We need to get in his head. Start taking every single first pitch. I don't want one batter out on the field swinging at first pitch. And then the second pitch, I want you to fake a bunt or I want you to call timeout because he's on the mound for too long. Just do some, Just get in there. He's tired. He's starting to weaken. He's not as disciplined and diligent. You're starting to see him break down. Now let's really turn up the heat. And some of us are like that in our approach to Christian life. We're not, we're not in God's Word. We're not offensive Christians. And so we're constantly on our heels just trying to uh, parry and parlay all the attacks of the enemy. And we're getting fatigued and beat up and weary. And in those moments, it's really, really difficult to keep my mind right because I really am tired. So God's saying, man, if you'll take this Word... And through the Spirit, you will let this Word transform your heart, and you will feast on it, and you will keep your mind fixed on it. You'll be ahead of the game. And you'll be on offense now. And you'll be delivering blows to the enemy, rather than constantly staying on defense. Here's the last thing I want to say. Like physical swordsmanship, Christians have to continually practice their skills with using the Word of God. Some of us understood this the first five years of our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we felt we had achieved mastery with God's word. And so now we take it for granted. And in the same way you would lose your skills with the physical sword, if you ever fall out of love with the word of the Lord, then you can, then you can be sure eventually you're going to fall out of love with the Lord of the word. My hope through this message is that you guys will be 
encouraged and empowered to put on the helmet of salvation. And if you've not done so after I pray and while we sing, we're going to give you a chance to respond and obey the gospel and put that helmet on. And if you're a Christian who is wearing the helmet of salvation and trying to live in a spirit of victory, but maybe you faltered or fallen or you're not practicing your sword craft like you should, my prayer is that you'll be humble and come forward and let us encourage you and pray over you so that you can leave this place today renewed and steadfast in your commitment to feast on God's word and get ahead of the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thanks so much for your word. Thanks for our time here today. God, I just ask any under the sound of my voice who need to obey the gospel, God, that they would be cut to the heart and respond and they could be uh, baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I ask that any under the sound of my voice who are road-weary warriors that are no longer deeply into the word and not using your sword, but instead are just kind of bunkered down in a, in a place somewhere hoping that the storm and that the front lines of the battle pass them by. I ask that you'd empower them to get up and get out and suit up and show up and get ready for victory and let us pray for them and encourage them as they do that. It's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.